a lot of times pastors, uh, preachers, when they <clears throat> start a message, they'll start with kind of an anecdote or a story or kind of a little joke, kind of try to win the group, uh, get the attention. This world is a mess. There, that was mine. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> it doesn't feel as much of a mess when we're in a room like this, in a place like this, in a setting like this. But honestly, internationally, ISIS, Iran, just human trafficking, in our own country and nation, we're at a place where in the name of progress and enlightenment, we've reached depths of folly and degradation that we don't even recognize. That place that the prophets talked about where they call good evil and evil good. It's a mess. But, you know, you move closer to home, the state of the professing church, sometimes our own families, our own hearts and lives, when we're honest, there's a lot of mess there, too. And the Bible says that we as human beings, ever since the rebellion in the garden, ever since the fall, the way, we've said this before, but the way to peace, the way to shalom, how to navigate to the way things are supposed to be, individual, my family, culturally, internationally, the way to peace, they don't know. We're no good at. We're really pretty terrible at it now. And there are ways that seem right to us, but they end up being the ways of death. And we play as much as we can and entertain as much as we can and drink or drug a lot of the time so that we don't have to face it. But the reality we're denying and dodging is this really bleak one, to be honest. But it's not new. It was the same in the time of Jesus. There, the professing covenant people of God, Israel, instead of being the light to the nations about the true God that they were supposed to be, there under the heel of Rome, a pagan political power, and true religion isn't flourishing among the professing people of God. Who were Jesus' most adamant enemies? The religious leaders. So back then, too, things were a mess. And in the middle of that, first with John the baptizer and then Jesus, this is the message. Get ready, because the return of the reign of God is just about to happen.
That's the paraphrase of Matthew 4.17. Jesus began to proclaim, Matthew says, for the beginning of his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this theme of the kingdom, I've studied it some over the last several months. It's just this exhilarating, huge, vast idea and reality in the Bible, in Jesus and the message and ministry of the New Testament, but I still think it's way too small in our understandings that are often so individualized and self-centered, it's just kind of God and me, and that's the main thing that we're concerned about, and my eternal destination, which is crucial and is important and is a part of all of this. But the big picture in the Bible seems to be the kingdom of God. We see it in the teaching of Jesus here in Matthew 4. What's the Sermon on the Mount? It's the sermon of the king about the kingdom of God. Jesus begins the Beatitudes, blessed are, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the needed surpassing righteousness of the kingdom of God. And so throughout his Sermon on the Mount, he's describing the kingdom of God, this great reality. And then back in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, after his suffering, the resurrected Jesus, it says, presented himself to them, the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, a 40-day Bible conference with the resurrected Jesus, and what's the theme? and spoke about the kingdom of God. You find it all the way through the book of Acts and you come to the very last chapter and that's the record of the advance of the gospel and the building up of the church and this is how it's summarized in verse 23. Paul witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus, to make the connection between the kingdom of God and Jesus. And that great book ends this way. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And what did he do? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that says to me that in my Bible study, in my hearing of sermons and lessons, the kingdom of God should be this really big central idea that helps me understand and interpret everything else. And I hope we can take a step towards that in what we think about together, together this morning. What is then the kingdom of God? I've already sort of alluded to it, but let me say it this way at first. The proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the announcement Jesus is putting us on notice the return of the reign of God, our rightful ruler, is about to happen. And that will mean either salvation or judgment for every person, as we'll see. How could it be otherwise? You know, we like the Tolkien stories and the others that talk about clashing kingdoms. This is the real one. Satan is the usurper. And in the Garden of Eden, he deceived. That's how he works. That's how he extends his rule and his sway. He deceives. He gets us to believe lies about God and lies about ourselves. And we go along with them and we live by them individually, family. But then it turns into cultures and societies. What the Bible calls the kingdom of this world. 
and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is clear. Satan is the god of this age. That's dramatic language. John, the apostle of love, says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. So, you know, when we sing our songs, he reigns, he reigns, there's a point to that, and there is a sense in which it's true, ultimately in providence. But I want you to know, when Jesus Christ really comes back in glory and power to reign and to rule, this world will look nothing like what it looks like now. He will reign and rule and glory, and the Bible gives us previews and descriptions of what that will be like. But it hasn't happened yet, not in that sense. And we live in light of the return of the reign of God. But it has started. There's the already not yet quality of the kingdom of God and the teaching about it. It started in the person and mission of Jesus and those who respond to the good news about the kingdom. And so John Stott says when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he wasn't referring to the general sovereignty of God over nature and his history, but to that specific rule over his own people which he himself had inaugurated and which begins in anybody's life when he humbles himself, repents, believes, submits, and is born again. And then Stott says, God's kingdom is Jesus Christ ruling over his people in total blessing and total demand. Another definition says the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God dynamically active to establish his rule among human beings. This kingdom, which will appear as an ap apocalyptic act at the end of the age when it comes in glory, it's already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver people from its power, to forgive them their rebellion, and to bring them into the blessings of God's reign. What then are the blessings of the kingdom of God? Well, there are some, like I said, that we've already experienced if we're a believer who's entered in. Paul says we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son that he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means a rescue operation has been launched and successfully executed. You've been delivered from the dominion of darkness. Sin shall not be your master anymore. Sin, which was a controlling and enslaving power that you habitually were defeated by before, that's not the truth about you anymore. It's still there, indwelling and pulling, but it's not master. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued by blood and by power. And you've been forgiven. Your sins, your failings, your rebellions, your wanderings, you've been forgiven. That's one of the present already experienced blessings of the kingdom of God. We've been given new life. Romans 14, 17 says it's a life of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is probably the chief blessing of the kingdom and his personal presence making real the things of Christ to us, including our forgiveness 
These are the blessings of the kingdom that we already enter into when we bow the knee to Christ. But there are blessings of the kingdom that we've not yet experienced that wait for the coming of the kingdom in glory and power that's still future. The removal and reversal of the curse and all that it does to spoil this world and this life. Final vindication in the judgment. We don't have that yet. There are many who are first now who are going to be last and last who are going to be first. The final and irreversible overthrow of Satan and unbelief and ungodliness. Here's a passage that describes the blessings of the kingdom future. And by the way, there's another one, Isaiah chapter 35. Sometime this Lord's Day, see an Old Testament prophet's preview of the return of the reign of God. But John gives one in Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will, be, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Those are the future blessings of the kingdom. We can't imagine it. But it's everything that's beautiful and wonderful about human life, magnified and amplified, and everything bad that causes sorrow and sighing, finally and forever taken away. That's the kingdom of God that's at hand, but not yet. But notice in a couple passages there, it says the old order of things is passing away. You know, it doesn't feel like that when evil and unbelief seem to be getting accumulating momentum. But that is the reality. It's like the Bible says, you know, as you choose sides, be real clear on how this is going to turn out. Be very sure you know how everything's going to end up. And though the wrong seems off so strong, this world and its desire and its values, John says, it is very much on the way out. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. In fact, Jesus said, talking about the cross work that he was about to do in John chapter 12, now is this world judged. Now is its ruler cast out. The cross was D-Day. The cross was where it was decisive. And there has been the ongoing battle and struggle, but there is zero question how it's going to turn out. This old order is passing away, and God is going to make everything new. No wonder then, with all of this at stake, and I beg you, as you hear this sermon, this is not just pious talk. 
This is the reality of how things are, and you're going to end up either in or out of the saved kingdom. So it matters very much. And it's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or as the Good News Bible paraphrases it, be concerned above everything else about the kingdom of God. And if what I've said in even a preliminary way is true about that kingdom, that's exactly the right attitude to take. You've got a lot of concerns. You've got a lot of things clamoring for your time, attention, and energy. If you're smart, you will make the return of the reign of God your number one concern and your number one priority. Well, what does it mean to do that? And one Bible commentator I read had a helpful summary sentence about what it really means to seek first the kingdom of God. To do that is to desire above all. And that first word, desire, that's what seek really means. To set your heart and mind on. To really desire above all the kingdom of God. First, to enter into it. Second, to submit to the rule and the reign of God in Christ. And third, to participate in the spreading the news of the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible and Jesus teach us. It means to seek first the kingdom of heaven. First, to make sure you enter it. Remember Nicodemus, religious leader, member of the Sanhedrin, moral, respectable religious guy, kind of on the edges back and forth as to whether he was really a, a disciple of Jesus. So he comes to him by night. And he starts to flatter Jesus and, kind of and Jesus cuts right through and says what? Unless a person is born again, he cannot see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that you get kind of mildly and nominally religious, interested in religious things and that you attend church from time to time. Some kind of maybe ethical turnover a new leaf. Not merely that by a long shot. Jesus says you'll only enter it through new birth. He says later in that chapter, flesh can only produce flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can produce spirit. Spiritual life in a person. As old-fashioned as it sounds, it's as true as it ever was. It didn't come from Billy Graham originally. It came from Jesus. You must be born again. And now, I hope you're thinking, either I have or I'm not sure I have. It matters very much that you be able to answer that question. And how does the new birth happen? The Holy Spirit works through the word and the gospel that he himself inspired and gave to us. He shines the light on Jesus Christ. And through this word, through this gospel, however it comes to you, you're taught who Jesus really is, what his cross savingly accomplished, who he is as this world's rightful Lord and King. And the Holy Spirit works 
teaching you, changing your mind. That's what repentance is. And brings you to the place where you realize the only right response is to entrust yourself to Jesus and his cross alone to save you, to forgive you from your sins, but also to swear allegiance to him, to say, as they said in the waters of baptism, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord in that way, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is what uh, the resurrection signified, his lordship, then and only then, Paul says in Romans 10, you'll be saved. And so the first thing is whether or not you have ever actually entered into the kingdom of God. The central Christian confession, as we've said many times, is Jesus Christ is Lord. The word for confess means to declare in a way that created a new legally enforceable situation. One writer said something that I've kind of been thinking myself for a while. The connection between the good news, the gospel, and the kingdom of God is obscured for Christians today by the use of the Greek word Christ or even Messiah, throughout our translations of the New Testament. How many of you have ever, in a non-church, non-religious setting, called someone a Christ? Uh, profanity, maybe. That didn't occur to me before I asked the question. But Other than that, we never use that word. We, many of us, think it's Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. It's a title. It means the promised king who saves. So every time we read it or hear it, we ought to hear Jesus the king, Jesus the Lord. That would help us, I think, as we think about what it means to respond to him. For most, probably the phrase means Jesus who saves me from my sins, and that's certainly true, but it falls short of saying, Jesus the ruler of a whole new order of life who has delivered me so I can be a part of it. And so, first, entering into spiritual new birth to enter into the kingdom of God. And I encourage you, urge you to ask yourself this day, this week, have I ever been born again? That's the starting point. And it leads to submitting to the saving reign and rule of God in Christ. Pursuing the things already prayed for in the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. That is, I pray, this is what I care about now. That the name of God, that is the, the truth about him, that he's self-revealed and disclosed, may be hallowed, may be regarded as sacred and central. People think about it none or on the edges of their life or they distort it. But we pray, may the truth about you be hallowed, regarded sacred and central. And may your kingdom arrive. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the will of God is done with spontaneity and joy and completeness. We pray and now care about that that's how we do the will of God as well. Seeking his righteousness means to pursue righteousness of life in full submission to the will of God as prescribed by Jesus throughout his teaching. John Stott says to seek first his kingdom is to desire of first importance. This is what you care about because you've been born again and you've been given a Godward heart. 
the spread of the reign of Jesus Christ starting with you and your own sphere of influence until every aspect of your life, home, marriage and family, personal morality, professional life, job life, bank balance, tax returns, recreation, entertainment choices, citizenship, political life, until all of these are joyfully and freely and intentionally submitted to the Lordship and control of Christ. Third, to seek first the kingdom of God also means to participate in spreading the news of the saving reign of God. Back to Acts 1, that interesting passage to me. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, the kingdom is on their minds. I don't think that would have occurred to us in our understandings of the gospel and the plan of salvation, frankly. It's on their minds. It's interesting. Jesus says, whoops, you're mistaken. There's no kingdom for Israel anymore. That's all spiritualized. That's not what he says. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Don't be preoccupied with calendar when it comes to kingdom. Here's what you should be preoccupied with. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's the task. And we don't really build the kingdom. That's God's activity. But we're witnesses to the kingdom. We are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that declares him Lord. And so we take this message to everybody, everywhere. That's the task. Same thing in the Great Commission, right? Then Jesus came to them and said, all what? Authority. You see, it's kingly preoccupation with Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and discipleize, make disciples, turn people into those who acknowledge that authority and live by my lordship, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and what? Entertain them. Give them religious, you know, concerts. No. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Why would that? Because he's Lord. Because he's king. That's what the gospel of the kingdom is telling us. But you know, we could say all this about the lordship of Christ and the kingship of Christ, but if we don't answer the question, how is it realistically that he exercises that lordship and enacts it in our daily life, we wouldn't have gotten very far. But the Bible makes it clear that the risen and exalted Lord Jesus actually exercises his rule and his reign through his word. It's the teaching of Christ. And he says at one point, all the Old Testament testifies about me, so now we've got our Old Testament involved. He said, uh, I'll send the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and he'll remind you of everything and teach you everything. Now we've got our New Testament. This is how Jesus rules and reigns. And in an individual Christian's life, if you call him Lord, this is the instrument of his kingship. And it's the same for the church. 
And human leaders are given by Christ to the church, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. But theirs is a derived, delegated authority. The pastor-teacher's task is not to innovate, but to faithfully herald the message once and for all delivered to the saints. And then to faithfully and with great care apply this teaching to the circumstances and situations of our lives. Not to edit, not to revise. This is how Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is King. That's how he rules his people. The kingdom isn't the church, but there's an inseparable relationship. The church is the fellowship of people who have accepted his gracious offer of the kingdom, submitted to its rule, and entered into its blessing. It is God's deed and God's activity. But you know, when the church comes to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're not merely saying that Jesus is my Lord. That again is too individual. We are acknowledging and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord of everybody, everywhere. He himself said, all authority is given to me. He is Lord of every person, every politician, every celebrity, and every Supreme Court justice who should always act and think and work in accordance with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship and authority of Jesus Christ to define anything and everything isn't merely those who signed up to be religious. It's for everybody everywhere because he is our creator as well as our king and one day our judge. There's a lot more to say that we don't have time for when it comes to the already not yet of the kingdom. And that can fake us out and it will be something that we need to come to another time to study. But I do want to end with this. The coming of the kingdom means salvation or final judgment for every person, including every person in this room. And I just want to say that to you factually and real. I want you to hear it with the seriousness that it deserves and requires. The return of the reign of God means salvation for the saved, but it means final irreversible judgment for those still in unbelief and rebellion. Even to the professing people of God, Jesus said in this very same sermon in Matthew 7, not everyone in the habit of calling me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In Matthew 13, there are a lot of the parables about the mystery of the kingdom going forward in this time before it returns in glory. And one of them was the parable of the weeds. You can read the parable itself, but beginning in verse 36, Jesus explains it. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field and I want you to try to find yourself in this story. Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire in the story I just told, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus said and says, whoever has ears to hear, listen. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help this time in your word orient and guide our thinking about salvation, about what it means to know you and to have the hope of heaven to this great central reality of your kingdom, the return of your rightful rule and reign, so that the mess and misery that we have created under the sway of the deceiving God of this age will be overcome once and for all. And now is the time of grace. Now is the day of invitation where we can freely be pardoned our rebellion and receive all the blessings of the kingdom. And so I pray for any who are here still outside of Christ who've never been born again, that they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then, Lord, for us who profess His name, may we more and more experience what it means to put His kingdom first, His righteousness first, in everything we are and do. We pray in the name of Jesus the King.